Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Lisa Boucher will join us to discuss raising the bottom. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science show. Well, in today's drinking culture, it may be hard to make mindful choices with regards to what and how much we consume. Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Ms. Lisa Boucher. Ms. Boucher is a registered nurse who, for the past 28 years, has worked with hundreds of women to overcome alcoholism, live better lives, and become better parents. She's written five books, including her latest, Raising the Bottom, Making Mindful Choices in a Drinking Culture. Ms. Boucher, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Happy to be here. How do we make mindful choices in a drinking culture? Well, I think to, for, to make mindful choices, we have to be aware and very cognizant of what are our patterns, because I think people can start to drink heavily or drink more often, and it can slide up so slowly that you almost don't recognize it until it becomes problematic. So I would say we have to be mindful of, are we creating a new habit? If, for instance, every day after work, are you stopping to get a bottle of wine or stopping with drink, to have drinks with friends? Or are you, is that something you start looking forward to eating around noon? Are you sitting there at your desk going, oh, I can't wait to go home and have a cocktail? I mean, that's indicative that perhaps your attachment to alcohol is, is getting a little too close. And you want to be very mindful and honest. I guess I have to put the word Self-honesty can definitely change a life. If we are honest with ourselves about what we're doing and why we're doing it, that can really be life-changing. So I wrote Raising the Bottom because I myself am in recovery. I've been sober 30 years now. And so I quit when I was considered a very high bottom, outwardly, my life, there was no, you wouldn't look and say, oh, clearly that person has a problem. In fact, my husband was very, um, he was adamant that I did not have a problem. He said, you are not an alcoholic. You just need to get yourself together. So I wanted to write a book and show people what it can look like, what alcoholism, what problem drinking can look like before other people may notice. And so I picked people that were functioning. 80% of the alcoholics in the world, they function and have jobs and families. So we have this stereotype in our culture that everybody, you can't have a problem unless you're literally the down and out drunk that you pass, you know, hanging out with a sign on your way to work. People look at those people and say, yes, they probably have some sort of problem, but I don't. And so the people, like I said, that I chose, there's 
10 other people in, in the book toward the back that I did their stories. And these are um, doctors and nurses and moms and teachers and one gentleman who was he later became, he was in the military, and then he ended up um, becoming a chemical dependency counselor. The book does lean toward women, but many men have loved it, and I think they're very, they're not threatened by it. It's just information and people's stories of what it can look like before it gets desperate. I mean, the stories, as you mentioned, are very diverse, but that thread is there. It's outwardly appearing, functioning okay, and it really isn't recognized. Well, I think, I know, let's just talk about coronavirus. Okay, the alcohol sales have escalated 300%. So clearly, people are using alcohol to cope. And that's always a danger sign, is when you start using it to change the way you feel because you're stressed or overwhelmed or angry or anxious. So we have to look at that. And I think our culture, I think we have a lot more problem drinkers in the world. Absolutely. I know people love to say, I'm a social drinker, I'm a social drinker, but they're drinking five and seven nights a week. That's not really social drinking. That's more like someone who could be leaning toward an alcohol use disorder at the very least. I mean, social drinking is someone who probably maybe drinks a couple times a month. That's social drinking. If you have to drink in order to be social, your drinking is no longer social, if that makes sense. So I think we have to reframe this this term that everybody throws around. Oh, I'm a social drinker when, like I said, they're drinking a bottle of wine a night. That's not social. That is not what a social drinker would do. So I do think that the bar is getting lower and lower and lower because it's becoming acceptable to see a couple pushing a baby stroller with their red Solo cups or to see people at these microbreweries with strollers and the babies and the toddlers are crammed into their strollers and expected to sit there for two hours while parents imbibe. And this is happening all over the country. And I have to say, when did we decide this made sense? When did it make sense for women to have playdates with their kids and start drinking wine? at these play dates. And then you see these kinds of things all over Facebook, all over social media. And, you know, we have had, we've become desensitized to what, when you peel back the curtain of that kind of behavior, you've got a lot of people who are living very desperate lives. You have kids that are one minute mom or dad is nice. And the next minute after a few drinks, often people's personalities change. So you can get either silly or ridiculous, or maybe you're someone who gets a little mean or snippy. And all of these things, you know, we're we're expecting children to deal with this kind of stuff. And it's very selfish. I mean, I hate to say it, but it really is selfish behavior when we justify behaviors that are unjustifiable. In, In what world is it okay to jump in your car and drive your baby home after you've been drinking? So I think we have to talk about stuff like that and say why. Why is this acceptable? And why does everybody think it's the only way we can have fun? And I know I'm going to throw myself in there because when I decided to quit drinking on my own, I was very angry. I knew it was the right thing to do. 
but the first thing that crossed my mind was, oh, my God, I'll never have any fun. And this is just what our brains do. And this is what society encourages and nurtures. I mean, you go to a party and you, you decide not to drink and, and at least four people will say, well, why aren't you drinking? But nobody ever asks you, why aren't you eating three cupcakes? Striking to me, I mean, we have two young kids, and I recall being other kids' birthday parties, two, three-year-olds at the park, and they're serving alcohol like it's punch. You're supposed to drink there, and then... In, In the book, I said, you know, when you go to a child's birthday party, like you just described, you see more bottles and cans than you do cupcakes and balloons. So when did we get so selfish that it has to always be all about the mom and dad? And I say to these people, I say to people, I say to my own friends, hey, if you really don't have a problem like you swear you don't, then why do you need to have all this alcohol at your two-year-old's birthday party? Can't you wait and get a babysitter, go out and drink and come home like it used to be? So... I don't know. We have really become desensitized to this, and I think it's very sad, and, and perhaps because my own mother was an alcoholic. So I have been around just about on every side of the coin. I mean, my first husband was a raging alcoholic. My siblings have had trouble with it. I'm in recovery. My mother, I grew up with it. So I have been affected, and honestly, it was terrible being a child of an alcoholic. And my mother was a sweet, gorgeous woman, and her drinking, she never had a mean bone in her body, but she really never taught us good coping skills to deal with life because she didn't have any. Her coping skill was, let's have fun, let's have a drink. And that does not translate well to adult life for her or her children when we have to deal with life my solution became, I'll have a drink, because I don't know how to cope either without it. So much of your book, it does cover both genders, but there is a focus on women. And oftentimes it's overlooked. Much has been made about the raging male alcoholic, but not so much females. Is it sort of a hidden problem? It is a little more hidden. I think it's easier for women to hide it. They drink at home. They drink after their kids are going to go to bed and justify it because they made it through the night. And I've talked to many, many women who are now in recovery, and that's how their drinking looked. They knew it was a problem, but they could still justify that, well, maybe they didn't work, or even if they did work, they justified it by, well, I'm going to work and I deserve this when I come home I deserve to have a drink and for too many it doesn't stop there it becomes an all-night thing until they're passing out waking up going to work and doing it all over again and even though you're getting your kids to soccer practice and the dentist you're not really interacting with them and I know one of the alcoholics in the book Fiona she's a physician and she said surprisingly how little she knew about the disease of alcoholism until it happened to her. And that seems to be a very common thread, even, you know, as working as a nurse, uh, the medical community's clueless. I mean, that's a whole other, we could go on, I could go on about that for another 20 minutes. But she said when she got sober and her daughter was curled up on the couch, her daughter was 15, bawling over some boyfriend that she broke up with. And she said, I was so detached. I had no idea my daughter even had a boyfriend because even though mom was, like I said, getting her to the 
soccer and the dentist and that she really was not engaged in their lives, in their children's lives. And the heartache that so many parents feel when they do put down the drink and they realize that, you know, I miss so much because I was never present. It was all about, like you're saying at the child's birthday party, it was all about the parent party that you really miss the whole, you're not in the moment when you're thinking about, getting your friends together. What am I going to drink? What are we going to have? When it becomes this very, you know, they say alcoholism, it's it's the selfish disease, and it is. I mean, it, the, the focus becomes inward on my fun, what I want, and, and you forget about the people around you that are putting up with less than optimal behavior. What about the medical profession? Why aren't they as attuned to this issue as they should be? It is so disturbing. Like I said, I've been a nurse for 25 years, and I've worked in emergency rooms and psych wards and um, other units, too. But those have been the bulk of my career. And I have yet, I can count on one hand the number of doctors, number one, who understand addiction. So I always tell people, if you're having a problem with addiction, do not run to the doctor, because most of the time they will give you a prescription for something and send you on your way. And that is not helpful to someone who's struggling with drinking too much. Um, And a lot of people complain of feeling depressed. Well, of course, you're drinking a depressant. So I always say, why are doctors not saying to the patient, well, if you're depressed, let's talk about your drinking. Now, I realize people lie. Absolutely, people lie. They're not honest with their doctors. But it would do a lot for the doctor to plant that seed. And some people are very have told me that they were very relieved when their doctor called them out and said, I'm not going to prescribe antidepressants until you stop drinking a depressant. Doesn't that make more sense? And then if the person refuses to quit drinking, well, their problem isn't depression. Their problem is the alcohol. But we don't have physicians who are willing to do this because it takes time. They don't want people to get be mad at them. When people go to a doctor, they want the doctor to fix them, fix the problem, and so they get a pill. And the second issue is there's very little training. I know my nephew is currently engaged to a wonderful woman who just finished medical school, and she's in her first year of residency. And so I asked her, I said, what did you guys what were you taught? And she said, nothing. We get a seminar. It's elective if we want to go. Why aren't they talking about this? Because I can tell you from my experience, working in the emergency room, 80% or more of what rolled through the doors was always alcohol or drug related. Now, whether that was showed up as a liver disease, esophageal varices, GI bleeds, accidents, trauma, so often alcohol or drugs was lurking in the background of that. And the doctors never, rarely, if ever, addressed the issue, especially if it was someone who looked normal. I mean, I've heard doctors even tell young women, oh, you're too pretty to be an alcoholic or you're too young. You just need to 
go exercise and try to eat right, and you'll be fine. Don't worry about your drinking. That kind of stuff is shameful. And I think a lot of it is perhaps the doctors, and I know I've not worked on a medical unit where somebody hasn't been in the throes of addiction, clearly, but they they want to ignore it. I, I mean, generally we say 10% of the population has addiction issues. 14% of the of doctors, and could it be because it's a very high-stress job, they spend years in school, they don't have a lot of people skills, some of them, because they have spent their lives studying and whatnot, and they're very stressed out by their jobs, which have become very much more demanding because there are some doctors and situations where they're expected to meet quotas and see a certain number of patients. So healthcare has dramatically changed. It's not really healthcare anymore, in my opinion. It's more like sick care. It's not really about getting people well. It's about putting Band-Aids on their lives so that they will keep coming back. And I know that's a very um, unpopular opinion to some and controversial, but it's the truth. When you work in medicine, it is disgraceful what I see on a daily basis how so little time and effort is spent to really help people get well what's the solution then how do we raise the bottoms and make these mindful choices well we have to start number one start talking about it on radio shows and podcasts and blogs and of course there's people millions of people like me blogging and talking about this so I do think the recovery conversation has become much broader. So people who may be, I would just suggest if you have someone listening and they're at all questioning their drinking, start doing a little research for yourself. Get on, listen to podcasts, listen to radio shows, go on um, different blogs and read. Because when we can identify and find our story, it's easier to accept it because it's just very hard For whatever reason, there's this stigma. As much as there's so much conversation and information out there, there's still somewhat of a stigma for people to accept that they can't drink. And it's just once you get over that, you look back and go, my goodness, who cares? I mean, nobody really cares that I don't drink. The only people who have ever questioned me about my drinking are people who have their own problems with addiction, and they're very uncomfortable with someone who seems to have gotten a hold of theirs. So I understand that, but I think, like I said from the start, we have to start with self-honesty. We can't be mindful of our behavior and our choices and why we're doing things if we choose to remain oblivious to our behavior. So I think we have to have some modicum of um, introspection and be willing to look at ourselves honestly. And that's where it starts for people. And if, you know, I think everybody's got to know someone who's in recovery. And if you're struggling, I would start there and I would reach out to them and say, how did you do it? What worked for you? I know some people do need to go to rehab, but not everybody. I never went to rehab. Uh, Like I said, I had a very high bottom. I saw my mother hit a very low bottom very dramatic stories. Some were 
tragic, some were tragically comical, but she really went through it. And she tried to find help via the medical community, even at notable places like the Cleveland Clinic. And all of these psychiatrists, therapists, doctors, all of them for 25 years misdiagnosed her and kept telling her, oh, she was manic depressive, she's this. They heavily medicated her to where she could barely function. Plus, she's drinking alcohol on top of it. It was a perfect storm. It was a disaster. So how is it that my mother, she'll have to read in the book, but she has this accident, and she finally gets sober when a doctor, who also was in recovery, recognizes her for the alcoholic that she was instead of all these other mental health diagnoses that she was slapped on. And so my mother went to rehab, and she never took another drink, and she never took another pill other than for her blood pressure and her thyroid. She was not manic depressive. She was not even depressed when she stopped drinking. So that's why I'm very leery to send people to a doctor, because really what they do is prescribe. And for my mother and for the many, many thousands of people that I've watched over the past 25 years rolling through the doors of these hospitals, many of them do not ever get any better when they don't address their drinking and the doctors tell them, oh, you're not an alcoholic, you're just depressed. And so they take all these pills, and for the next 20 years, they do what my mother did. They have half-lived lives, their families are distraught, their kids are a mess. It's a mess. So I wanted to show people and explain this. I talk about it in my book. I did a whole chapter to doctors, nurses, and healthcare, and I did a chapter also to children because I feel like we are losing our focus on the kids. When they are raised in these alcohol-fueled environments, I don't care if you're living in a mansion and, and affluence often brings heavy drinking because the bottom never falls out, but these children are suffering because they never really get those meaningful connections with their parents because alcohol tends to put up almost like a a barrier of sorts, an emotional barrier. We're not really present when we're drinking. The book is really filled with a number of heart-wrenching stories in some ways, and it shows there's a number of different paths to recognizing there's a problem and paths to recovery. From all the years of experience, all these stories, if you have final words of advice for those who might be facing these choices, these issues, and ideas for making that first step. Well, I would say try not to be so afraid of it because people are terrified at the thought of getting sober or even just stopping drinking. And it's fear that prevents a lot of people from taking that next step. And I would tell them, I have yet to meet, and I'm talking for 30 years now, I have yet to meet one person who ever regretted quitting drinking. But I have known so many who are devastated and deeply regret that they didn't quit sooner. Everybody says, the people that wait till, you know, decades of, they say, God, if I only would have quit sooner. So don't be afraid of it. You will have fun after, a, there is a big life after drinking. I really found my gift when I put down the bottle and I went back to school and finished two degrees in sobriety. I did, I have a very rich full life and alcohol does not 
need to be a part of it. I mean, I am much more engaged, and I have never regretted being a sober mother. I raised twin boys, and they both went to college. They went on, and they played Division One football. They graduated college. They're doing well in their lives. They're hard workers. I would have had very different children had I been one of those drinking moms. I just know I would have. If I was the mom sitting on the deck, drinking with their friends, my sons would not be the men that they are today. And they are the first ones who will tell you that. So my parenting was so much better and so much different as a sober mom. And I'm grateful, very grateful that I don't have to live with regret like so many people do because they wait and sober up in their late 40s or 50s when their children are already grown and there, a lot of times there's a lot of damage that goes on, even when it's not noticeable, outward, horrible chaos. There's, like I said, it's very hard to connect on a meaningful level when alcohol is the big third person in the relationship, regardless if that's a parental relationship with friends, lovers, spouses, it doesn't matter. It it acts as a a wall in, in many ways. So I would just say try not to be afraid of it. Take that leap of faith and trust that you will land on a soft cloud. We were just talking with Ms. Lisa Boucher. She has written the new book, Raising the Bottom, Making Mindful Choices in a Drinking Culture. Ms. Boucher, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you for having me. Take care. Have a great day. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.